following message is by Justin Duran, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So as we look at the section of scripture that we're examining today in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, uh, I'm blessed to be able to preach on the fulfillment of the promise uh, that God gave to Mary through the angel Gabriel that we looked at the last time that I preached when we were over at the SDA. I know that already seems like forever ago, uh, but it happened, Um, and I was preaching on the promise that Gabriel brought from the Lord to Mary. Now, I don't know if you guys remember, but I'll certainly never forget that was a morning that had a lot going on. And so if you don't remember the sermon, that's okay. But I just want uh, to remind you that at the onset of that sermon, when we talked about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and telling her that she was going to bear the Messiah and all the many promises that he brought and the directive to name uh, the Lord Jesus that he gave to Mary, I, I made a statement. I made a statement at the onset of that sermon that Gabriel was foretelling one of the greatest events that would ever happen in all of human history. One of the three greatest events, as a matter of fact, I said, that would happen in all of human history. He was foretelling the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the Savior. He was proclaiming the imminent arrival of Emmanuel, God with us. That's incredible. Just that promise, just that an angel would come and speak to Mary and make her those promises that while she was afraid, he would bring her tenderness, that he would say, fear not. That's amazing. But now we see just a number of months later or a few lines in your Bible, depending on how you're looking at it, the fulfillment of that promise. We're seeing the birth of Christ Jesus One of the greatest events that ever happened in all of human history because without the birth of our Messiah, then the perfect life and blameless death of our Messiah never takes place. And without the perfect life and blameless death of our Messiah, then the resurrection never takes place. These are the three greatest events to ever happen in all of human history. And friends, though this is a very familiar section of scripture to many of us, I just want us to breathe in for a moment the glory that we bear witness to every time we read this scripture. The coming of Jesus, the birth of the Messiah, this is no small matter. So look again with me as we start. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar that all of the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, all of this might seem like superfluous information, but it's actually not. It's actually pretty important stuff that we see as I have dug into and studied kind of this section of scripture. We see that all of these things that Luke are telling us, he's establishing a timeline. And it's actually a timeline that we don't particularly get in the other gospels. He's establishing this timeline according to verifiable events. And there's all kinds of question within the secular world or within the academic world about exactly what does this establish. We know that there were several registrations or censuses throughout Caesar Augustus's uh, uh, tenure as the ruler of Rome. 
And so we know that that's a, a valid thing. And we also see uh, that there was at least three uh, during, uh, and now there's a funny story here about the pronunciation of, of this uh, governor's name, because everybody on staff seems to have a different understanding of what that pronunciation is. And so lovingly, uh, we on the trip decided to refer to him as Q, the governor Q. So the governor of Syria, Q. <laughs> We also know from verifiable history that there were at least three of these types uh, of registrations or, or censuses that happened while he was the governor of Syria. And why this one is important to be the first is because it seems like this one actually uh, came out, this, this registration was preemptive, it would seem, preemptive of the census that Caesar Augustus was ordering. And so it seems like the governor Q uh, had told people to go back to their home towns to register for this census. And there are all kinds of interesting uh, socio-political uh, theories as to why he may have told people to do that that aren't necessarily key to the text. But the important thing to understand in all of this is that uh, he, he did this and this was done. And as a result of this, Joseph was taking Mary with him to Bethlehem. In many of the other censuses that took place through the reign of Augustus Caesar, we see that people were actually told to stay where they were. So in that case, Joseph would have been told to stay in Nazareth. He would have been told to stay in Galilee. But because of the directive of the governor of Syria, Q, it seems that Joseph took Mary and went to Bethlehem to be uh, counted among, or to be registered rather, for this census. And it says, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. In verse 4, it says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, to the, Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. You see, in all of these verses, we, we are given kind of an explanation of what's happening all as a result of, it seems, the directive of Q. Now, <clears throat> when we get to verse 5, we see something interesting that I just want to address really quickly. It says, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. It would almost seem uh, in the Gospel of Luke that we have a contradiction between Matthew and Luke. Whereas in Matthew, we see that after the angel Gabriel visited Joseph, he went and he took Mary as his wife. But Luke tells us they traveled still as uh, betrothed or those who would be promised to be married. This is not a contradiction, friends at all in what God's word says, because if we read carefully in Matthew, it says that he took her as his wife, but it says that he did not know her. They did not uh, consummate their marriage until after the birth of Christ. And so when we see in Luke this idea that they're betrothed, it's likely because of the idea that the, 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 the marriage hasn't been fully consummated yet. And it says that who was with child in verse 6, it says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So I want you to see this picture, and I know that it's very familiar. I'm placed with the unique challenge this morning of, of, of teaching a section of Scripture that as Christians, we should know. We should know backwards and forwards. And as a matter of fact, even living in a secular world, many non-Christians know the story of the birth of Christ, the nativity, fairly well. And so, friends, if I'm telling you things that you already know, it's because my job is not to preach to you something new and exciting. It's not to, to preach to you something that you've never heard before. My job, my responsibility, my honor 
is to preach to you the text that's before us. And we see here that there came time for her to give birth. That means that they were traveling likely late in the pregnancy. They were traveling a long distance late in the pregnancy. And in verse 7 it says, She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Now, I've always heard this term, swaddling cloths, uh, and I didn't know really what they were because I've heard of swaddling blankets. We have those for our babies uh, and things like that. And, and it's, it's similar, but it's a little bit different. These were clean cloths that she was traveling with that were in strips. She took them with her, or Joseph or somebody had the foresight to bring them with them for just this purpose. These are what these cloths were intended for. They knew that this was imminent. This wasn't a surprise for them, yet they traveled anyway. And she wrapped him in swaddling cloths, these strips. Another thing that we see here is that she gave birth to her firstborn son. That suggests there's more. But firstborn son and wrapped him. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths. This gives us a picture that this was a lonely birth. This wasn't a birth that was attended by many people. Oftentimes, what would happen uh, is that when a, a woman would give birth, much like today, there are other people in attendance, and they'll tend to the care and the cleaning of the baby. But we see here in this section of Scripture that Mary did that. This was a lonely birth. And so when you see those pictures of nativities where there's like 15 people all hanging out in a little like wood shack, that's probably not accurate. As a matter of fact, it's, it's definitely not accurate. Now, whether or not Christ was born in a barn or in a room or in a cave is really inconsequential. What we do know is that this was a birth that took place in almost solitude. It was a birth that took place in a lowly manner. This was not the king being born to trumpet sounds as far as the earth is concerned. It says that there was no place for them in the inn, and as a result, Christ was laid in a manger. And then we see the trumpets. Then we see the heralding. In verse 8, it says this, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, I had never really thought about this. I'd never really considered it before. I mean, I'd considered the, the, the shepherds being in the fields, and I've heard the, the stories, and I've read the books about shepherds being kind of the, the, the outcasts of society, the dirty guys, and, and I love the poetry of God coming and speaking to them, and that's beautiful. But as I dug into this section of Scripture and learned more and more about it, in actuality, these were a very specific set of shepherds, it would seem. In the Talmud, uh, in the holy, book, uh, holy laws of Jewish tradition, these guys actually otherwise wouldn't have been there. It would seem that the flocks that they were tending overnight were actually a very specific flock. They were very specific animals that were meant for temple sacrifice. We see, as we look in Jewish tradition and Jewish law, that there wasn't supposed to be in this region uh, between Bethlehem and, other, and another place, there wasn't supposed to be any other animals except those that were considered those for, uh, for sacrifice, for temple sacrifice. 
So not only were these shepherds that were tending sheep, but they were a very specific set of shepherds. And so as I was studying this, I thought, well, that must mean that these are different kinds of shepherds, right? They're accepted because they're tending to the holy sheep, right? They're tending to the ones that are meant for sacrifice. So maybe these guys are a little more well thought of. Maybe, uh, maybe all the narrative that I've heard before is inaccurate. No, they actually were still viewed just the same. They were still viewed as men uh, that were less desirable in society. You, you didn't really have them around in polite society. However, the qualifications for these shepherds were a little bit different. Not much, but it's important to note that these shepherds were men who loved the Lord. These shepherds, by nature of fact of where they were tending flocks, were likely selected specifically for the purpose of raising up sheep that would be meant for sacrifice to the Lord. And there was a set of qualifications for them, minor as they may be. And so these men likely loved and honored the Lord with their lives, with their every breath, becoming purposefully outcasts from society so that they could serve God in this way. And I love that because we see how God honors that life of sacrifice. We see how God honors that dutiful and faithful servant when it says in verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So just as we saw uh, in, in this book as other folks had been met by angels, there was this fear that came over them. And we see a familiar phrase from this angel, fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Friends, we see here in verse 11, the, the first time the gospel is referred to as good news. The good news of what, friends? The good news of the coming Messiah, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. See, they came to these men. They came to these men. And it says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is the heralding of an awesome and amazing event. It is not in any type of vanity or poetry that I tell you that the birth of Christ is one of the three greatest things to ever happen in all of human history. The text supports that God's glory shone around them. And appropriately, they were filled with fear. Friends, this brings us to a reminder that I just want to, to encourage you with. While we should always rejoice in the glory and the mercy of our God and Savior, let us never forget the God whom we serve in his power. Let us never forget the God whom we serve in his majesty and in his wrath. Let us never forget that while the Lord our God is to be loved and cherished that it is entirely appropriate to have a fear of this God. Not a fear that would keep us from him, not a fear that would keep us from approaching the throne, but a fear that would remind us that we are never to place ourselves on the same level as God. A fear that would remind us that we are never uh, to, to behave in a manner as, uh, that would suggest that we are equal to God in any way. No, we are the servants of an awesome and powerful God 
who angels listen to, armies of angels. And God's glory, it's appropriate that God's glory might fill us with fear. But then we should remember that every time we see this response in the Gospel of Luke, that we see the words quickly follow, fear not. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is the Christ, uh, who is <laughs> Christ the Lord is born. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, friends, this is an important phrase that I think that gets overlooked. Just a little bit ago, I said that the story of the birth of Christ, this whole nativity scene, is very familiar even amongst non-believers within our culture. But do you notice that that phrase often gets changed? You ever heard that phrase said a different way? Maybe glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill to men. You ever heard that one? Is that what the scripture says here? No. I've heard tons of variations of this phrase, but it's important to, to, to note here that it is glory to God in the highest and peace, among, uh, peace and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, this is a very unpopular thing to say in our culture, friends, but I want to remind you, there is an exclusivity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is an exclusivity to God's word, to the story of the good news of great joy. There is exclusivity. We cannot fool ourselves into thinking that we are allowed to live however we want, behave however we want, worship whatever false idols that we would worship, spend time and money doing the things that would benefit us only in this world, that we would praise and worship everything alone except for God, and that this would still apply to us. We live in a culture that wants to tell us that. We live in a culture that wants to say that you can worship God in your own way, that you can serve the Lord in your own right, that whatever you believe in your heart is your truth, that it's all relative. Friends, that's baloney. We see in verse 14, glory to God in the highest, not glory to man in the highest, not glory to man's opinion in the highest, not glory to the desires of man in the highest, but rather glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And friends, how is the Lord your God pleased with you? When, friends, when you remember to love the Lord your God first and most, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, God tells us. The next is to love your neighbor as yourself. If the Lord is to be pleased with you, then you must love him first and most and with all of who you are because glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. 
verse 15 says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. This is the first response of an obedient and worshipful heart. This is the first response of men who love the Lord their God first. This is the first response of men with whom God is pleased. That they should go and see this thing that has happened. That they should draw near to the glory of God. He's made it known to us. Let's go. Let's move. No hesitation. And it says that they went with haste. They didn't lollygag. They didn't stop and finish their dinner. They didn't think, hey, guys, you know what? Should we go and do this thing? I don't know. Let's pray on it. I don't know. Let me think on it. I don't know. The sheep might wander off. I got other things to kind of do. No, it says they went with haste. They said, hey, guys, those glowing things, the glory of God, the angels that just came, they told us something even more spectacular than that that we just witnessed. Let's go. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. I see purposeful intent here. And the baby lying in the manger, exactly as they, <coughs> excuse me, as the angels had said that they would. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And, and I just find that funny because they made known this saying to Joseph and Mary. And, and there's a part of me that kind of laughs. Like, like they went to them and they see the baby and they see everything the angels had said. And then they go to Mary and Joseph and I'm like, did you know? <laughs> did you know that this is an incredible thing? Now, if you're a parent and you have ever been uh, gifted the pleasure and joy of witnessing the birth of your child, it's already an amazing thing. Now, could you imagine somebody coming into the room and saying to you, did you know this is incredible? And you're like, yeah, I got that. I got that. But Mary and Joseph have already spoken to Gabriel. They already know the magnitude of this moment. And yet that doesn't stop these men. It doesn't stop them from saying, do you know? Do you know the amazing thing that's happened here? Do you understand what we've been told concerning this baby, concerning this moment? Do you know what is happening? Friends, I think that sometimes as Christians, we fall into this complacency of we don't speak the gospel enough to one another as Christians. We speak the Bible to one another. We study God's word together. But I think that occasionally, not always, but I think occasionally there grows within us this complacency to speak about the magnitude and the majesty of the birth of our Messiah. There grows within us th this idea that that's common knowledge and that we don't need to continually profess this thing. And I say, friends, that's not true. We should constantly encourage one another. Christ is born. Emmanuel, God with us. Christ lived, Christ served, Christ died a blameless death. These are things that we should constantly remind one another of. The Lord is risen, hallelujah. These are things that we should constantly exhort and encourage one another with. It, let us never be a people that grow complacency, have any kind of complacency grow in our hearts about the majesty and the power and the glory of our God. 
the power and the majesty and the glory of our Messiah, our King, our Savior. Let it constantly be on our lips. If we encourage each other in anything, let it never be anything of the world. Hey, you look great today, but I never speak Jesus to you. What? Hey, I was doing this awesome study through the book of Thessalonians, and it got my mind twisted, but I never mentioned the beauty and the the majesty of Christ. Let us never be that people. May we always encourage one another with the miracle that it is that God came, that God fulfilled his promises, Emmanuel, God with us. And it says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things. Friends, do you hear what happened? Mary didn't laugh at them and say, I already know that. Mary didn't say, oh, yeah, 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 you had, you had a bunch of angels come to you on a hillside. Gabriel came and talked to me by name, told me that this was all going to happen and that I was going to name this boy Jesus. She doesn't look down her nose at these men, does she? What does it say she did? She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Friends, this is what happens when we encourage one another in the majesty and the glory of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Jesus, uh, Savior, Jesus Christ. When we encourage one another with these things, when we speak those truths that are even well known to us, we store them up, we ponder them in our hearts. They are no longer allowed to be just a philosophical or educational pursuit. And it says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This was their response. Go do what God says. Speak it to people who probably know what's going on anyway. And then praise the Lord and go back glorifying him. So as we look at this section of scripture, there are tons and tons of truths. As a matter of fact, there are more truths and beauties in this small section, only 20 verses of scripture that I could possibly get to in the time that we have here this morning, even if I went super long, which I, I might. <laughs> okay, I, I probably won't. But even if I went super long, we wouldn't be able to get uh, through everything. So there are just a couple of things that I want to point out here in addition to what we've already looked at. I want to remind you that even though Gabriel came and he foretold to Mary the birth of Christ, this is not the first time we see that in Scripture, is it? We see that the Bible over and over again prophesies the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we see this. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it says this in the ESV. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We have been told before, long before Gabriel came to speak with Mary, that we would be given a ruler, a king. We also see in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophecy of the virgin birth. 
Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, God with us. See, this isn't a new story that we see. It's not like Gabriel showed up out of the blue and started foretelling things that the Bible hadn't talked about all along. And we see it happen just as that, as we remember Luke 1, 34 and 35. It says, and, the Mary, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, Gabriel is coming and he's telling Mary the same thing that Isaiah said generations before. But that's not the only thing. That's not the only thing that the story of the birth of Christ comes to fulfillment in prophecy for. We see also that in Micah chapter 5, the very birthplace of Christ is foretold. The very birthplace of the Messiah is foretold. So all those things that we talked about before with the governor of Syria, Q, doing these things and, and, and the order, the decree that came out from Augustus Caesar that everybody should be registered. God worked all of these things together that his prophecy might be fulfilled, that his word might be fulfilled, that his will would be done. All of these things work together for the glory of God. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, <clears throat> who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So in Micah we see this is where the Lord would be born, in Bethlehem. But it's not just that a baby was born. It's not just a baby was born of a virgin. It's not just that a baby was born of a virgin in a place where God said, it's that this would be God with us. As Isaiah said, Emmanuel. As Isaiah chapter 9 said, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, Jesus' birth was not just the birth of a baby to a virgin in a place. It was the incarnation of God. We see this supported all over the Bible John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we see, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 8, Philippians 2, 7, over and over and over, we see that Christ is not just a baby born to a lady in a place, but that he is God with us, born, prophesied, God's promises fulfilled for his people. Even the very circumstances of Christ's birth were foretold. Even in just Luke, if we look back in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, when we see Gabriel talking to Mary. And I know that I'm referring a lot to that, but that's because we didn't get to some of this stuff. Thank you, brother. Mm. Austin Thompson, you are a beautiful man. Thank you. All right. 
We didn't get to some of this stuff, but I, I just really quickly, I want to I go over this. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Friends, this was Gabriel quoting Isaiah to Mary. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will called, be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And, in, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Everything that Gabriel said came to pass. Everything that Gabriel told Mary is exactly what happened. The story of the birth of Christ shouldn't be new to us if we know the word of God. It's expected. It's glorious. It's amazing. It's fantastic. It should make us scream for joy. We should rejoice in the idea that God is with us, but it shouldn't surprise us, friends. Because God has been saying since the beginning that this would happen, that his son would come, that he would make a way for his people. And friends, when God makes a promise, it happens. When God says something will come to pass, then guess what? It comes to pass. And all of this story establishes and sets up yet another promise that God has made us. That if we profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Friends, this, all of these promises that we've seen established, all of the promises that we saw fulfilled, all of those promises should give us hope in the Messiah, hope in Jesus, and should give us a firm foundation and understanding that the promises of God are never undone. And Christ, Christ's birth, his life and death and resurrection are the fulfillment of a promise and they're the de declaration of a promise that we who are in Christ, called according to his purpose, those who believe and profess, those who repent and obey, that we will be kept and held in the Lord, that we will know him, that we will be with him in heaven, an eternal place, that we are saved from the eternal wrath and destruction of God that would be known otherwise in hell. If all of these things are true and we can see plainly that God keeps his promises, let us never forget the promise that he made to us, his children. That we would be saved from wrath. That we would be eternally in his presence. That we would know him. And friends, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, then I want you to understand that that promise is not yet laid on you. 
that you have no security in that promise, if you don't know Christ as Savior and King, if you have never believed and professed that belief, if you've never repented of your sin and sought forgiveness from the Lord, then that promise is not for you because, friends, the Bible tells us that this promise was made for God's glory, for peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. And if you are in rebellion against God, if you do not believe in who he is and you have not repented of your sinfulness, if you don't understand that you desperately need the saving grace of Jesus Christ, then you are in rebellion against the sovereign king of the universe and he is not pleased with you. And you should repent. You should believe. You should see that the Lord God is trustworthy and true and everything that he says has come to pass and everything that he has said will come to pass. Friends, I call you believe. Believe in Christ Jesus. Believe that he is the incarnate son of God. What's more, he's Emmanuel, God with us, sent that we might have salvation in him. Believe, friends, that he lived a perfect and sinless life for 33 years. Believe that after having done nothing wrong, he was brutally murdered, that his blood might be spilled and cover your inequity, our sins. Believe with all that you are that on the third day, God raised him from the dead and showing his power and dominion over all things, including death. Christ came forward from that tomb. Believe. Believe, friends, that he then went and spent time with those that he loved and his kindred, presenting himself to over 500 people so there could be no mistake. Believe that as he spent time with them and he ended his ministry with them, that he then rose physically into the clouds. Believe that even now, Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, sits now at the right hand of the Lord where he makes intercessions for his people. Believe, friends, that he will come again. Believe that he is God and no other. Believe that in him is salvation and by no other means. Believe. And as you believe, friends, repent of the fact that you until this point have been in rebellion against a good and holy God, the only good and holy God. And after you've repented, friends, then seek to obey all that God has commanded, all that he has done. Friends, none of us is without sin, myself included. We are sinners in desperate need of grace. But I call you, friends, to believe and repent that you might know that grace. The birth of our Savior is glorious. The story of the birth of our Savior is not just a story to be remembered once a year on a calendar marking when we're doing other things like hanging lights and buying presents 
and celebrating with family, friends, no, the birth and the majesty and the fulfillment of the promises of God in the birth of our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, should drop from our lips with every breath we take. It should be this birth, this life, this death, this resurrection with which we constantly encourage and uplift one another. Let it be the birth and life and death of this man, our God, that continues us on in unity as one body, as God leads us through this tremendous time where he is working in our church and in our community. And with that, friends, let us pray. Awesome, God. Lord, we thank you again for this day. And Lord, we thank you for the birth of our Savior. We thank you for promises fulfilled. Lord, we thank you that you are reliable, that when you speak, that Lord, we dare not question, that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you say something will come to pass, that it will. And Lord, for the times of doubt, we apologize and we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. We repent. And Lord, if there is any among us today that has yet to believe, we pray that you would stir in their hearts their affection for Christ Jesus. Lord, that they would believe, Lord, that by your grace they would be granted the awesome and amazing gift of faith that they would believe with every fiber of their being, that they would love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength, that, Lord, they would repent of their sinfulness and that they would seek to obey you in all that you have commanded. Lord, would we be like the shepherds who immediately go with haste to bask in the glory of your wonder? Lord, would we be like Mary that treasure up these things and ponder them in our hearts? Lord, would we be like you? We love you. We praise you. Lord, we need you. And Lord, we know that it is you who sustains us. We thank you for these things and we praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.